Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Protect your online privacy today. Use our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash mission log, and you can get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 418, once more unto the breach. Once more unto the podcast, it's Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we forge ahead through whatever peril awaits us, doing our duty with honor to bring you the morals, meanings, and messages found within each and every episode of Star Trek. This week, once more unto the breach, the one where the Dahar Master himself will go once more um, uh, unto the breach. That seems logical. And before we get to the story, John will go once more unto the trivia after I tell you how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter, then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, here is John Champion with your trivia for this episode, and it will be glorious. Today's episode, Once More Unto the Breach, was written by Ronald D. Moore, and no surprise there, since Ron has been the go-to Klingon guy for quite a while. He dropped in the references to the Alamo to really drive home the themes of this story. More on that in a moment. And he used his knowledge of Star Trek past to use the portrayals of Kor and Martok to define their central disagreement. It was directed by Alan Croker, and here he is, the finale king, but this time not with a finale. The last episode of his that we covered was Shadows and Symbols. We won't see him again here until the series end. But remember, he's been over on the Voyager stages working on that show, too, and we will see almost as much of him on Enterprise. Now let's talk a little bit about the Alamo. Uh, Particularly, this is a refresher for us uh, students of American history and those of you listening who may not be as familiar with American history, since that plays a role in this week's show. Um, It is a point of discussion, and we've heard it mentioned before, so let's give you a little historical context. Davy Crockett 
had many careers, a militia member, a county commissioner, state representative. He was known in the early 19th century already as a politician, an outdoorsman, an adventurer. In the 1830s, the Mexican government was facing a revolution from people living in Texas, both Tejanos and U.S. colonists. Crockett had made his way out to San Antonio and by early 1836 signed himself, among others, as volunteers for the cause. Along with about 200 other men, Crockett was part of a defensive position at the Alamo, grossly underarmed for what would be a surprise attack by General Santa Ana's army on March 6th. Almost everyone defending the Alamo was killed, and the backlash caused more people to join the Texan cause, leading to Santa Ana's defeat in April 1836 at San Jacinto, thus forming the Republic of Texas. The controversy over Crockett's death and that of others comes from the many, many stories that were built up over time. Either he and others died while fighting off the Mexican army, or grossly outnumbered, they surrendered and were executed. It just depends on what story you hear and how you feel about him and the others who were there. Let's talk about guest stars. Welcome back, of course, to J.G. Hertzler, front and center as Martok. And we have two women in Klingon officer positions. The first is Nancy Youngblood as Kalana. Now, this is technically Nancy's second appearance on Star Trek, but the first for us. She also had a role in Voyager, and she got her start on TV in the 80s, leading to numerous guest appearances on shows like Murphy Brown, Doogie Howser, then later on Law & Order LA and Cold Case. We also have Blake Lindsley playing Sinon. She had a theater background as well as sci-fi. She was in Starship Troopers, and while this is her only track appearance on screen, she does play another Klingon character in the video game Klingon Academy. As Martok's aide Darak, we have Neil Vipond, a Canadian actor who got his start on TV in the early 1950s with a few of the Playhouse shows, and this was also while having a career in theater. In the 80s, he was appearing in televised versions of everything from Macbeth to War of the Worlds. More recently, he's appeared on Curb Your Enthusiasm, and at the age of 91, as of our recording, still working. He has one other Star Trek credit to come when we encounter him again on Voyager. And finally, the return of John Colicos as Kor. We've talked about him before, going way back to his first appearance in the TOS episode Errand of Mercy and his first two of three DS9 appearances, Blood Oath and the Sword of Kalos. There were many stops in between for a long and diverse career, this episode is one of his last on-screen roles before John passed away in March of 2000. So many exercise plans talk about blasting your core. I don't know if this bodes well for one of our favorite Klingons. Prologue. A quick history lesson. O'Brien and Bashir are sitting in Quark's bar, talking again about the Battle of the Alamo and Davy Crockett's death, where he was a hero who died fighting, or surrendered and was executed by Santa Anna. Worf says they both have it wrong. If you believe the legend, then that's what matters. If you don't, then he was just a man. <laughs> <laughs> 
another history lesson. Later that night, Worf is visited by Kor, that legendary Klingon who encountered Kirk on Organia, the Dahar Master, the one who fought a blood oath with Kang and Koloth and Jadzia. He's back to remember old times and to ask Worf a favor. He's a warrior without a home, a soldier without a battle. He needs Worf's help to have one last battle, and he's run out of options. When Worf proposed to Martok that they add Kor to the roster, it does not go well, with Martok demanding that Worf leave unless Martok forgets that they are brothers. Act 1. Martok has a bold plan. He proposes to Captain Sisko that a small group of birds of prey can cause enough chaos among the Dominion to throw them off balance. A run on their shipyards, breeding facilities, and supply depots. It will catch them by surprise. In peace, there's nothing so becomes a man as modest stillness and humility. But when the blast of war blows in our ears, then imitate the action of the tiger. Stiffen the sinews, summon up the blood, disguise fair nature with hard-favored rage. Of course, they'll retaliate. And it might be a good idea that the Defiant and more ships are awaiting their return just in case. Ships are readied, and Worf brings up that sore subject one more time. An angry Martok clears the bridge of his own vessel to give Worf the lowdown. Kor's family are of the blood, destined to rule by Kalas himself. In his younger days, Martok was set to join the defense force, but he was from a poor family, a commoner, and Kor single-handedly rejected him. It was only years later that Martok got a battlefield commission while on a civilian ship that was attacked that he ascended the military career he has now. He's never forgiven Kor, and his father didn't live to see Martok's success. But now it's done, and Kor is a third officer by Worf's decision, and Martok reminds Worf that whatever happens is his responsibility. Back on DS9, Kor and Ezri Dax are catching up in the replimat. The symbiont's memories are still there, and they both reminisce about the good times. She leaves when Worf approaches, and he tells Kor about his assignment. It might be a blow to his ego to not have full command, but Kor promises to do his best as third officer of the Chitang. And when Worf takes a step away, Kor seems a little confused and asks to be reminded of the name of the ship on which he's to serve. When the departure time arrives, Kor shows up for duty, and there's a hush over the bridge as the crew realize that they are in the presence of the Dahar Master. It's distracting enough that an agitated Martok has to remind them all to get back to work, unless he is forced to find a crew who can. Act 2. On DS9, Ezri Dax and Kira are having a personal chat in Quark's bar. There's always an adjustment period when a trill has a new host, reconnecting with old friends. She's been having some pretty intense dreams about Kor since he's been around, just hoping she could be at his side in another mission, all of which Quark overhears and thinks it's about Worf. On Martok's ship, the Chitang, it's dinner time in the mess hall. Over food and bottles of blood wine, tales are told of the general's victories in battle. When Kor enters, it's the same odd reaction as before, rankling Martok a bit, but the crew are eating up stories of Kor's battle against the Federation at Caleb Four, using the same strategy that Martok plans against the Cardassian base at Trekla V. Privately, Martok is unpleased 
but Worf reminds the general that the crew just haven't been around someone like Kor before. All stops, though, with the announcement that they are approaching Trelka 5, its battle stations, but a confused core needs a reminder from one of the passing crew that his place is on the bridge. Act 3. The initial run on Trelka 5 is a success. The first two birds of prey create a diversion, though only one escapes. When Martok's ship and the other two close in to finish the job, they're met with heavy fire. The Chitang takes damage, and both the General and Worf are injured, leaving Kor to assume command. He presses on, calling out commands to take another pass. Now set the teeth and stretch the nostril wide, hold hard the breath, and bend up every spirit to his full height. Martok and Worf rouse, hearing what's going on, while Kor gives orders that will lead them to their deaths. As Kor gets more confused, he calls for a message to be sent to Kang, who is long dead. While Martok struggles to grab his dagger and countermand those orders, Worf intercepts the knife and punches out Kor, then orders an escape course. The four remaining birds of prey will fight another day and set a new course under cloak to the menorah shipyards. Martok orders Worf to remove Kor from the bridge, but Kor sees himself out, stopping for a moment outside, realizing what has just happened. Act 4 at Quark's, Dax enters to order a drink, but Quark takes the opportunity to unload his unsolicited opinion. Worf is all wrong for her. He hasn't done anything to win her back. Surely she doesn't want to be in a relationship she inherited from someone else. Esri says she has no desire to be in a relationship with Worf. And now she'll take a drink, please, sweetheart. Back on the Chitang... Martok and his aide Darak, along with two officers, enter the mess hall to find Kor eating alone. Martok takes the opportunity to tease Kor about his mistakes, taunting him while asking if the base on Caleb Four is guarded by Cardassian or Jem'Hadar troops, or is it Federation, one of the officers asks. Feeling uncomfortable himself, Darak tries to leave but is made witness to the humiliation. Kor, summoning up whatever dignity he can, rises from the table and tells those in the room to savor the fruit of life. It has a sweet taste when it's fresh from the vine, but don't live too long. The taste turns bitter after a time. Later, War finds Martok in his quarters to let him know that he's taken Kor off the duty roster, and Martok confides in Worf that he took no joy in his actions toward Kor. But this moment of clarity is short-lived, when an announcement comes from the bridge that the Klingons are being pursued by ten Jem'Hadar fighters. Act 5. Worf has an idea. One of their birds of prey could reverse course, hit the Jem'Hadar with a graviton pulse to make them drop out of warp, then engage long enough to buy the others time to get back to the rest of the Federation fleet. It's a suicide mission, no matter what, and Worf volunteers to take command of the Ningtao, to see it through with a volunteer crew. If we are marked to die, we are now to do our country loss, and if to live, the fewer men, the greater share of honor. Overhearing this is Dorak, who slips away to have a friendly conversation with Kor in private about the old days, days of action and honor, and lets him in on Worf's plan. Only someone with experience could pull it off, three times the life experience of someone like Worf. 
and only someone whose mind is certain. That he which hath no stomach to this fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made, and crowns for convoy put into his purse. We would not die in that man's company. That fears his fellowship to die with us. Kor, determined, meets Worf outside the transporter room, says that he will see him in Stovacor, and asks if there is a message for Jadzia. Then he knocks Worf out with a hyperspray and beams himself over to the Ning Tao to take command. Later on the bridge, as the Ningtao warps away, Darak brings a bottle of blood wine to toast the courage of the Ningtao crew, whether they succeed or fail. And to Martok's astonishment, Worf walks in just as the Ningtao has engaged the enemy in battle. It was not his day to die. The Ningtao, under Kor's command, maneuvers rapidly, collapsing the enemy formation, but still takes heavy fire until the Chitang loses contact. From this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition. Somehow, Kor has done it, held off the Jem'Hadar ships just long enough to give the remaining birds of prey time to meet up with Federation reinforcement. Martok doesn't know how. How one pompous old man could hold them off with one ship. Worf asks if it matters. Martok opens the bottle of wine. The assembled crew toast core with a song. The end. A wonderful retelling of the episode, John, and I love how you were inspired by the bard himself, William Shakespeare, uh, as you added those segments into your I recap. couldn't help but be because clearly Ron Moore was too. So I'm following his lead, but thank you, sir. I'd like to start off with Worf's flawless logic about the legend of Davy Crockett. He's either a great hero or a simple man, or you don't believe in the legend or you do believe in the legend. That really set the tone right there from the get-go of this episode. Sometimes they're very heavy-handed with uh, telling us the story before they tell us the story. And sometimes that's okay. Sometimes it actually really resonates, as it did here. Um, And that's why I thought it was important to get that out in our trivia this week, because it might be a story that a lot of people don't hear. They know the name, but they don't know why there is a legend attached to it. So um, I thought it was handled perfectly in the episode. So do you ever have those moments when, like, a phrase or some type of, uh, like, a terminology is used in conversation and everyone kind of nods because no one wants to admit that they don't know what that phrase means. This mm-hmm. is me. The entire time when I hear the, the, the title Dahar Master, I'm like, of course. Mm-hmm. Yes, of course I know what Dahar Master. I don't know what that means. <laughs> so I looked it up. The best that uh, I can cobble together several examples about the definition of Dahar Master, this is what, this is what I've found out. It's one, quote unquote, one who has reached legendary status among the Klingon people and the respect to be regaled in song and story. <laughs> Hmm. So pretty much the the circular logic of that title is one who has that title because they earned that title. Okay. Exactly. Okay. The title precedes the legend. I I love it. I love it. That's the perfect, like, unanswered bit of trivia in Star Trek. And it never should be. Please, no emails. Please, no (laughs) emails. I'm just telling you what I found on the internet. If if it's convoluted, it's not worth it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not worth it. Yeah. One little production thing that I want to point out here, because it looks, I I, I do it, and I know that sometimes it's not fair, because we can all say, well, it was produced in the 90s. 
I want to call it a great effect shot and a not so great effect shot. That departure of the Birds of Prey over DS9 and then the far, far background. Yeah, it was like a classic Disney animation multiplane camera where you've got the Birds of Prey up top, then DS9 in the mid, and then a few Federation ships down on the bottom. So cool and such an inventive angle because every plane was in motion as was the camera. Great, great shot. Not so great an effect shot. Uh, like the raid on the first Cardassian starbase, I just felt <laughs> not not that great. Mm-hmm. But, you know, look, it, it's TV. It's a TV budget. Can't win them all. You know, didn't take away from my enjoyment of the story. But uh, these are the things that jump out to me. Another thing that jumped out to me, because I have to say I'm in full agreement, I love Kira's assessment of how she would be as a counselor. <laughs> <laughs> Alicia's At least being she honest. was. Yes, yeah, that was fun. And I, I do, I, you know, look, we'll get into it a little bit later, but it's one of those weird kind of TV tropes of somebody who is listening in on a conversation they shouldn't be listening to, but they're right there with an earshot. How long Quark was standing there listening in on Esri and Kira's conversation, just literally, they're side by side. He's right in front of them with a tray. They mm-hmm. didn't know. I mean, come on. I, I get it that it's a TV trope, but who? Wow. Uncomfortable. Let me replace those names, John, with names that you may be familiar with in this type of okay. trope. You have Janet, you have mm. Cindy, and you have Mr. Furley or Mr. Roper. Yeah, as yes. Oh, my God. Perfect. Perfect. That is this yeah. trope. Like, yeah, literally. Yeah. Quark is our Furley here. Yeah, yeah. There's a. That should be on a T-shirt. Quirk is our Furley. Furley. <laughs> Somebody make it happen. There are many good lines in this episode, but I, I do love Kor coming into the uh, the mess hall on the Chitang. Sit, sit. You give me too much honor. <laughs> like that could ever be a thing, and it's so self-aggrandizing. I like oh oh just just too much honor. No no no, I can't take it. And nice little callback that uh, they're drinking the 2309 blood wine, which Martok literally just got from Nog. That was cool. And Kor is so, he's so uh, cultural, Mm -hmm. like uh, cultured that he actually could taste the vintage from the very first sip. Much like... uh, 21st century gentleman's spy yes, would Yes, uh, very much like that. Unless, unless blood wine is just such a broad term that they really could mean anything. And 2309 is the only one that is worthwhile. Like you have another, you get the 2315. And it's like, well, this tastes like hydraulic fluid. And you, you know, get to the 2326 <laughs> and like, well, th- this is tastes like rotten bananas. Uh, you know, <laughs> they just have no idea what they're doing when it comes to the manufacture of blood wine. Yeah, it's like 2309 was the only one that was palatable. Yeah. They're like, oh, I can drink this. It must be 2309. My tongue is not dissolving. I've been in trying for 100 right years, and we finally got one. <laughs> yeah. uh, I love the scene with Corindex in the Replimet because for as, as brutal and as uh, ruthless as a warrior as Kor is or was, mm-hmm. he does delicately have his napkin placed on his knee like the refined gentleman that he I is. I didn't notice that little detail. That's great. Oh, yeah. That's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and, uh, whether that was, I mean, that could have been an actor thing that could have been very specific or it could have just been uh, John Colicost's natural reaction. I'm sitting down and I have a napkin there. But little details like that speak to the difference 
in the upbringing of Kor and Martok. Very exactly. Cool. Yeah. Exactly. Because he was of noble mm-hmm. birth. He was, you know, in the royal court. And it contrasts really nicely with the the alienness of the napkin scene in or the dinner scene in Star Trek Six where the Klingons didn't know what to do yes. with their napkins and they ate with their yes. hands. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. So I thought that was a nice mm-hmm. contrast. Uh speaking of contrasts. You know, you've ever been to that party where you saw, like, the person who thought they were the life of the mm. party completely get the wind taken out of their sails when the more popular kid comes through the door? It's like, oh, you do me too much honor. <laughs> oh, no, 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 please. It's so-and-so's party. I was just here because someone asked. Right. I'm really not supposed to be right. here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> that was Kor and Martok in yes, the galley. Yes, 100%. Yeah. Martok had his crew riveted, and then all of a sudden, Kor comes in like, <laughs> pay no attention <laughs> please, to me, please. really. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I'll be honest. I, I love how, I, and it must be John Colicos maybe thinking about Michael Ansar, but I love how just reverent he was about even mentioning Kang. Mm-hmm. You could hear it in his voice. You could see it in his eyes. Yeah, I could see him playing out some type of fantasy about them in. As the Klingons that they I, were. I think moments like that you only get when you have a really skilled actor who has got the background not only as a performer and as a human being, but then you have the background of the role as well. Like This is the perfect merging of those two things. And thank goodness for shows like Star Trek that have this long history that you get to do that. You get to bring somebody back like that and really give it resonance, make it count. And I'll be honest, um, when Kor, when he subdued Worf mm. and then he beamed out and he said, long live the Empire, I cried. I oh, shed a tear. okay. Okay. I that, uh, and I'm right there with you. For me, it was a moment before. And it was Kor telling the unconscious Worf that if he finds Jedzia in the halls of the Hallowed Dead, that he will remind her that her husband is a noble warrior and that he loves no one but her. I just, oh. Oh, I yeah. get choked up thinking about it. Oh, so good. He was magnificent. Such beautiful writing yeah. in his scenes. Yeah. yeah, wonderful. My favorite line of the episode, though, and because there are so many fantastic mm-hmm. lines, but uh, my favorite line of the episode was from Darok, mm-hmm. just this kind of background throwaway character. He holds that bottle of blood wine to Martok, and he said, if they succeed, you can drink to their courage, and if they fail, you can still drink to their yes, courage. Yes, you would be both. We I... both thought that was same brilliant. favorite line of the episode it was good and it wasn't overplayed they 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 nailed the truth of that comment the singing at the end to praise core the core's actions this is why core has the title of dahar master well yeah because you only sing it to somebody who has the title of dahar master because they're worthy of the praise uh because they have the title Does Martok need a refresher on exploiting his cruise car competencies? Let's find out what Norman and John think. We will go once more onto the beach, but first, a word from this week's sponsor. So going online without ExpressVPN, John, is like using your smartphone without a protective case. Uh. Uh, I shudder the very thought. I mean, we all, only as most of us do, that we we have a case so that our phone won't be, you know, go unto the breach one more time. 
Most of the time, you'll probably be fine, but there's that one accidental drop that might happen onto a solid concrete slab that makes you wish you had protected yourself. Uh, That kind of regret is very hard to live with, and uh, that is the perfect metaphor for why you should be using ExpressVPN to protect your online activity. Everybody needs a VPN. So think about it this way. Every time you connect to an unencrypted network, it could be in a cafe, a hotel, an airport, a coffee shop, wherever, your online data is not secure. Any hacker on the same network can gain access and steal your personal data. And that means anything from passwords to financial details, uh, all kinds of stuff that you do not want out there. And it doesn't take much technical knowledge to hack somebody. I mean, some cheap hardware is all you need. Pretty much a smart 12-year-old could do it. Your data is valuable. Hackers can make up to a grand per person selling that personal information back to somebody else on the dark web. So that is just as irresponsible as walking around without a case on your phone. And that's why you need a VPN. Now, Norman, why specifically ExpressVPN? Well, the first thing is that they have this encrypted tunnel technology. What that means is that you have a secure tunnel between your device and the Internet, essentially creating kind of like this armored corridor so that hackers can't penetrate that corridor to steal your sensitive data. That's really important. And it also makes it super secure so that these 12-year-old hackers with supercomputers can't (laughs) get past ExpressVPN's encryption. You, you may laugh out there, but it's, <laughs> it's true. true. There it's are some smart 12-year-olds out there who want 1000 bucks a pop. Yeah. And with the advent of so much demanding technology today, people just want to have something that works and it's easy to use. So you have one button to push to get protected with that super secure encrypted tunnel. It works on all your devices. It works on your phones, your laptops, your mobiles. I like saying that because it makes me sound British. <laughs> your mobiles and more. Stay secure on the go. With one touch ease. It's as simple as that. So this is what Norman and I do, and one touch is right. I love the fact that ExpressVPN is seamless and simple. It's working in the background, and I just have to toggle it on or off to my liking, and it works to protect my data wherever I am. So secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash mission log. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash mission log. And you can get an extra three months free. Expressvpn.com slash mission log. All right, Norman, Klingons. So much to talk about with Klingons in this episode. But one thing that I, I don't know, should I be surprised or not surprised or maybe question the way they handled it here? just as prejudiced as anyone else. Um, I, I, I think this was a good choice to have two very different Klingons like Kor and Martok. Now, they're both warriors. They're, they're both from this military tradition. And it's rare in Star Trek. We kind of joked about it before on Mission Log, how you don't get a lot of you know Klingon sculptors or Klingon musicians or chefs. We know there's one somewhere on DS9 if he hasn't closed his food stall yet. Um, but basically, we focus on the warriors. But here we have two who are very different. Maybe the, the thing for me is at first it, it rang a little less true that overall the Klingons would not accept someone who isn't of the right stock. 
since it seems like they're always just cheering about who won what battle and how many of the enemy that they killed. Like, it seems like they, they have an already built-in meritocracy when it comes to that. So, mm-hmm. yes, we do have fighting among families and one-upmanship. I mean, look at Worf's whole rise in the House of Moog and, and uh, et cetera. But it was just funny to me that you'd have an application to the Klingon Defense Force that is any more difficult than wrestling targs or enduring pain sticks. <laughs> like, like it, seems, <laughs> it seems like they'd be pretty much on equal footing there. Like, do you want to come fight? Cool. <laughs> Come on down, you know. Yeah, I, I think that there is a really wonderful distinction that they were trying to make here that I haven't really seen before in in the way that they portrayed Klingons from the next generation and until now, and that that there is uh, a, a culturalized hierarchy of the noble houses in the Empire. Now there are houses in the Empire to be sure, because we know the House of Moog, the House of Doros, sure. the House of Martok. You know, we we have been referenced to these houses before. But now we see a clear delineation between houses of noble birth and then just houses of families. So Kor, and I'm sure Kang and Kolath as well, since they are blood brothers, they were all of these higher imperial houses, which has a certain prestige built into that nobility. And there may be a point there may have been a point in time where kind of like the the militarized like cultural uh, zeitgeist that took over the empire has allowed all these other houses to rise in prominence. But it's like, take for instance, like the, the decline of kind of like the nobility in any monarchy, mm-hmm. even though the noble houses still exist, they will still look upon any type of rise of the working class to better themselves as something that's still inferior mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that they'll treat them as inferiors, even though that they were able to build themselves up and build up their own stock in the world with their own two hands. And even though they may be able to even financially compete against some of these noble houses, they still weren't of noble birth and therefore lesser than. Yeah. And that's what I see going on here. And, and that makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I wondered if, if there was any point where a guy like Kor, uh, because he, he goes to Worf with his hat in his hand, and they're, they're, you know, they already have uh, a kind of connection that they can bond over. But can a guy like Kor go, go directly to a guy like Martok and say, I need your help. And by the way, you exceeded every expectation. You you have risen to these ranks because you deserved it, because you are a great warrior. Or then does a guy like Martok just turn it back around and say, I've hated you my entire life because of what you did to me? Um, which apparently is what we were setting up Martok to do. And, and we will definitely get into that and uh, how that affects uh, Martok, uh, because I'm very curious about your take on that. Mm-hmm. But I, I did find it very interesting that there was so much prejudice and infighting, because mostly all we see is the warrior class. You know, Martok says, this is a great little detail, that he was serving on a civilian ship apparently for years. And I have to imagine that there are a lot of people also serving on civilian ships, and therefore a good number of Klingon civilians who are just not part of the warrior class, or are they all self-loathing because they aren't warriors? That makes for a very difficult society to live in, I would think, if you're uh, among the Klingons. Um, or are you... Well, John, mm-hmm. those, those batleths don't sharpen themselves. They don't. They don't. You have to have a batleth sharpener somewhere and sharpen mm-hmm. with honor. I did find it interesting in just one very short exchange of dialogue that this kind of class-based system, and and you just alluded to it, talking about how you can have the fall of a monarchy 
but that aristocratic heritage is still there, so they may still look down on others who are of a different class. But there is this old guard meets new guard, and you have core as this old guard, you know, living this class-based life, and Martok of the new guard, whether it's purely because, you know, the the self-serving reason that he had to fight his way out of this, but that new guard rejects those ideas and favors ascension by merit. But then Kor, based on his purely consistent logic here, thinks that Martok should just understand and honor how that system works. Well, yeah, if, if you are part of the system and you agree with this and you agree about honor, then surely you just agree with the honor that is inherent with understanding your place, you know? Yeah, I think that this is where I find the kind of like the, the juxtaposition between class-based systems within basically the centralized military uh, society uh, it's fascinating, even if a bit convoluted, because what I would have liked to have seen Martok do instead of kind of uh, lament that he was passed over for some type of leg up in, in going into the academy, I wanted him to actually thank Kor for making him work as hard as he did to prove to everyone how good he is. That's what I wanted to see Martok do, because that's the Martok that we're used to seeing. He's... He's like the soldier's general. He is. Not this officer, you know, that was born into a lifestyle of privilege and rank. Even though those officers may be good, because we know that Kor and Kang and Koloth all serve the Empire with honor and yeah. whatnot. But Martok, he has the respect of the men from the ground up. Yeah. And I think that that's something that you can't, you can't just inherit. You have to live that life in order for you to gain that respect, like the way that Henry was in the mud mm -hmm. with his soldiers <laughs> on that day. Yep, yep, exactly. And I think about these scenes that we have absolutely loved with Martok up until now. I think about him on the promenade with Nog coming up and getting kind of bullied by the Klingons and Martok telling him, you're doing a good job by doing this, by, by being you know, these self-appointed policemen of our behavior here on the promenade, because that's somebody who understands rank and he understands duty. So those moments, those are the kinds of things that make me think, all right, would Martok, and, and look, I, I'll skip ahead enough to say that I think this is a very powerful, very effective episode for all included, for everybody here. But I did wonder if there was another way to get Martok to come around and Martok to behave a little more like the honorable Martok who I've grown to truly love in this series. He's somebody who can win by doing. He is somebody who can win by taking the honorable route. And what he does toward Core is not honorable in the least. And that's a little hard to square unless we can just say, this is such a deep wound. This is the central tragedy of his life. And for whatever reason, he can't shake it, even though he could probably size up this situation in somebody else and recognize the better path forward. So what do you think about that? I, I see what you're saying about Martok having kind of like uh, not being able to to forgive this slight, this grudge that he's, you know, uh, born towards core this entire time. But I'm glad that there was a realization that it wasn't just about dismissing Kor or embarrassing him in front of all of these junior officers that 
basically treated Kor like the living legend that he uh, is, I guess, accustomed to being now. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether or not he's comfortable with that or not, I'm sure he is, or else he wouldn't just kind of brush off the honor that they bestowed upon him as, as flippantly as he did. But you're right. I think that somewhere along the line, I think Martok should have taken the higher road and proved to the junior officers that only in deeds can you overcome any type of at um, any type of adversity that is befallen you, whether it is uh, command, whether it is age, whether it is reputation, whether it is not coming from a noble house, when it's basically coming from you know a you know a, a grunt trooper's background, which mm-hmm. is is Martok. He's like, look at me, look at what I did, look at what I've earned for myself. That's honor, that's dignity, that's integrity. Yeah. This is what you can achieve for yourself. And you don't have to be born from a noble house. You don't have to be born with a, a silver batleth, pardon the pun, <laughs> to do that, right? So yeah. I, I think that there could have been a better example of that. And I really was disappointed that they wrote him in such a petty uh, way to demoralize an old man who made a grave mistake in front of all these younger troops who turned on him like a dime. Yeah, They turned on Kor, who they were... You know, they lauded and, you know, put upon a pedestal so quickly. Which is exactly the kind of behavior that I want to see the Martok that I like swoop in and correct. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I want to see him put on his daddy pants and come in and correct that kind of behavior. Because it is very painful. That was the word that I wrote. It is painful to see Martok humiliate Core. But at the same time, it is a very strong scene to have him realize that he got no joy from it. At least Martok has that ability for a self-reflection here, but you just go, okay, how many decades did it take you to get to this point where you've held this grudge and you've realized that the grudge has not served you because even when you did what you thought you needed, which was to take him down a peg and humiliate him in front of other people, it did not serve you at all. It only made you feel worse. It's a powerful scene. It's an important scene. I almost wish that that had come earlier in some way so that Martok could have grown even more by the time the episode ends. Again, it doesn't take away from what I think is uh, a, a set of powerful scenes acted by a group of very strong actors. But it gets to one of the central themes here in this episode, which is about aging And there is sort of a conundrum presented here. How does one either gracefully bow out when it's time or remain vital when there's still skill and and knowledge involved? And there is no right answer here because everything has to come case by case by the actions that are taken, by by the, the outcome of those actions that are taken. Worf is right to want to give Korra a chance. And Martok is right, for the wrong reasons, to not jeopardize the mission. You know, this is early enough that we haven't fully revealed what's going on with with Korra, but if there's any indication at all that he doesn't know what's going on, he shouldn't be there. He jeopardizes the whole team. And Korra is the third part of this equation here where he is unable or unwilling to accept reality. Again, none of this excuses Martok's behavior at all, 
But it goes back to this old problem again that we have with Klingons, where they can talk about honor all they want, but every single one of them bends that definition to fit their desire anyway. So I, I found this to be a problem with an imperfect solution, no matter how you come at this, no, no matter what angle you decide to take. And this is where I think um, the, the, I was probably surprised the most from the character that uh, I didn't think would would be written in, in a way where he could mediate between these two opposing forces of the Klingon Empire and culture and society and honor. I think that this is actually one of Worf's best episode, mm-hmm. if not his best episode so far in Deep Space Nine, because I don't know where we're going from here. Yeah. But take a look at the position that Worf is in. Worf is struggling between doing the right thing by core, but also serving the master of his house and his commander, mm-hmm. uh, Martok. So he's basically trying to juggle what is right, what is honorable, and what is my role in this as a leader. And he steps up and he tries to do the right thing for everybody for the right reasons. Yeah. You know, he doesn't know what core is going to become on the bridge. He knows that Martok is sore at core, so he has to manage those expectations. But the bottom line is that in battle, Worf stepped up. And he is the one who decided to do the right thing and make the ultimate sacrifice so that the mission was a success. That's what an honorable Klingon would do. Martok didn't choose that. Kor didn't choose that. Worf chose it for them. He chose it for all of them. And in the end, he did the right thing. Mm. Again, for the right reasons. (laughs) And this is something that we don't see Worf do consistently enough on a daily basis. It made me really reconnect with his character again because... It gave it gave us something new to look at, in my opinion. Agreed. Yeah, uh, and Worf needed that. I, I don't want to step too far away from the central themes of the episode here, and you might have some more notes to fill in, but I, I do want to sidetrack for just a moment before we get into our uh, wrap-up, because there is the matter of the B-plot, and I know that it is not given nearly the weight as the A-plot here, but I'm going to say that I have a little bit of a problem with Quark here. Why, why does Quark act entitled about anything in Dax's life? I know that Quark is pushy and obnoxious and he oversteps boundaries, but and I know that it's supposed to be a fun character thing that he's in love with her, but it's getting to the point of creepiness, and I'm a bit disappointed that Esri didn't just lean in and say, back off. You know, here's the interesting thread between this episode and Chrysalis. It's, it's kind of like the the ghost of Jadzia's influence. Bashir can't let it go. Mm-hmm. Quark can't let it go. She was so impactful on both of their lives that by the absence of her presence alone, they've made terrible choices post her death because of how strongly they felt about her. Yeah. They can't get over their feelings of, of how, much they wanted to be a part of her life in that very genuine, sincere, committed relationship kind of way. And I'm surprised that it actually echoes this far into this season. But I can understand that they're trying to try and make some kind of resolution by showing Bashir acting badly and making poor choices, and now Quark acting badly and making poor choices, solely because they still don't know how to deal with Love Lost. 
Looks like we discover that ejecting the core means something very unfortunately different to Klingons than it does to Starfleet. We have come to the final breach of Once More Unto the Breach. And uh, in our final analysis, we're going to take a look at what we've discussed throughout the course of this episode and come to the conclusions of does this episode still or withstand the test of time? And have we found any morals, meanings, or messages contained within? So let us perform one last charge into the fray (laughs) and see where we come. Here we go. I mean, look, this is an episode I already indicated earlier in our discussion that I think has so much going for it. It's so strong. And um, you actually summed it up very well in the last segment, saying that this is probably a favorite moment for Quark. Uh, Sorry, not Quark, Worf. (laughs) One syllable has an R. Up until this point. You know, we've had so many problems with Worf's development over time and some bad choices and just boneheaded ideas. And here we're we're back to this Worf that is acting out of the goodness of his heart and imparting some knowledge along the way and learning something from the experience. Like This is all good Star Trek stuff. There's a little bit of a downside to this episode. And I feel like, if anything, it's that this feels like an episode that is trying to say a lot in a very short period. So some of that is going to get less attention than it deserves. I feel like I could have taken at least another episode with the core story and with the Martok in relation to that part of the story. I mean, there's just so much richness, richness there that I didn't want it to end after 42 minutes. So... That is a downside, uh, but I feel like they hit a lot of the emotional beats very strongly. John Colacos is magnificent, and I, I already said it before, you need people like him and episodes like this to, to keep the painting a more detailed portrait of who Klingons are rather than just, oh, the, they're warriors shouting honor all the time. This, we had the benefit of an actor with some age on him, with a character that has a, a rich background, and then we get to actually take that to the next level and do something that has resonance and, and meaning. The character work is great, even if the script asks us to swallow a lot more that may not really fit. You know, he, he's losing his mind, but he's still competent enough to take command of a ship. Whatever, fine. That That's just the mechanics to get us there to where we need to go with the character. Again, if, if maybe there were a longer way to express this, um, to make those choices a little more subtle, we could have. But whatever. It did not take away from my enjoyment. I think what works best here is that we have an examination of character. Character with history and played by people who are at the top of their game. Um, I've had so much good to say about JG as Martok, and even in an episode like this where you go like, oh, that's not the Martok I love, I feel like there's still a little bit of a bounce back there where you can go, okay, at least he learned. At least moving forward, he will be a little bit different from that guy that we met at the beginning of the episode. So overall, I think this plays out very well, and um, 
so good to see a Klingon episode where I really care about the Klingons in that episode. They don't feel two-dimensional. They feel earned. They feel real. Uh, how about you, Norman? Well, I mean, I'm going to give you an absolute yes for me. I think this episode truly holds up. I'll be honest, it's probably one of my favorites so far in this entire run of Deep Space Nine that I've either watched or commented on as part of Mission Log. And a lot of it has to do with John Colicos. His performance is core as this this aging and, and adult Klingon, this this living legend. Watch how he acts. Watch what he does in this episode. It's a it's a it's a nuanced performance. It's a masterclass in acting, and it's an understanding of the character that he created. What in nineteen sixty seven sixty seven to now into nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, and understanding this character and maybe what this character has gone through. Maybe there's some of his personal life bleeding through mm. into this character because this is one of, as you said, John and trivia, one of his last performances on screen. The writing was brilliant in this episode, especially when. They touched upon that that age old dynamic, that kind of that cultural war between uh, the young and old, the brashness of youth versus the wisdom of age. You know, it's a time honored uh, dichotomy. You know, in in narrative writing, this very well may be the OK Boomer narrative for <laughs> you know DS Nine. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want to put like more of a modern spin on it, but this episode really won me over in in one particular scene. It's where. Derek and Kor were in in Kor's chambers lamenting about the glory of the past and how every action they made paved the way for the the glory and the prominence of the Empire. But as they grew older and as their wisdom matured and as they aged, they realized that the characters they are now are the characters that they're talking about in that scene. The young officers who have not yet understood the temperance and wisdom of time. Like Kor said... You're focusing on these moments, the, the being young, mm-hmm. but the fruit will turn bitter oh. over time, and you must savor it. God, that was wonderful. Right? Yeah. That, that scene with Derek and Cor, I don't know why, but it struck me so similarly to when Dr. Boyce and Captain Pike mm-hmm. were talking in that scene in the cage, mm-hmm. because you're talking about two men who are trying to do right by their people trying to make these decisions that affect life or death and the consequences thereof. And I think that when you get Klingons involved with that depth of writing, you really get to see behind what uh, essentially is this, this, the dichotomy of, say, a Krug or a, a Gorkon or a Chang type of character versus Claw in mm-hmm. Star Trek V. Mm-hmm. Look at those three characters. They're real. They have agency. They have depth. They have layer. They have purpose they have motivation they're written well and then you have claw yeah <laughs> i think that that's kind of like where this this whole difference between what klingon what people think klingons are and what they either were yeah or could be again sure and i think that we just saw that on display in this episode yeah i mean look when they hit it right with the klingons they really knock it out of the park and not all of them have been perfect by any means but this is one of those that really says something about who klingons are and why there's a rich history and and mythology there and that that might bring us into our morals meanings messages so when we talk about messages that are found in this episode look i think there is there is a study of aging here, and we can't help but feel a good amount of sympathy for the position that Core is in 
and then by proxy the position that Worf is in. Like, what do you do here when you're trying to do right by this person to whom you owe a certain amount of respect and care, and um, you, you you don't want to dismiss them simply because they're older. Kor has something to offer. He definitely has a talent to bring to this. And clearly Martok is in the wrong here with his outright dismissal, which is based on his you know, family prejudice there as well. So I think the, the aging discussion that's happening here is interesting, but I don't know if we really broke much new ground with this. I think it's more, it, when it comes to that, it's just more about the character study and just sort of feeling what they're going through as opposed to really telling us something about what they're going through. But I do feel like the way this story is bookended in the, uh, in the teaser and in the finale about, well, Davy Crockett was either a legend or just a man, and at the end, Kor was either a legend or just a man. That really says something about the power of myth. And there is this there's this saying that sort of gets flippantly dropped around by writers, you know, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. And it's a, a kind of a dismissive way of saying that the truth has no bearing whatsoever as long as you're trying to entertain an audience or, or get across a point if it's something that you're taking seriously. And that's not what happens here by bookending the episode with Davy Crockett and the core myth. It's an acknowledgement, I think, that we we build stories to fit our own narratives, and these stories have value regardless of the factual truth. And that's not a license to whitewash history or ignore factual information. You know, sometimes, though, we need to take away a bigger lesson or a more important truth from a story than just simply the plot line. And there's a, uh, there's a religious scholar named Reza Aslan that many people in our audience may know about. I, I think he's interesting, though I definitely part ways with some of his arguments. Uh, we won't get into all of those now. But uh, he said something once in an interview that I thought was incredibly interesting, that when it came to determining fact from myth, if you had asked somebody in Jesus's time that same question they would not understand the difference. They wouldn't understand the question you were asking because the story was the story. That was the point. And there's truly value in that. There is value in storytelling and myth building. And I hope now we're sophisticated enough to tell the difference between fact and story, but also appreciate the importance of both and where those merge that, that that has its own new meaning that is equally important to share and celebrate with each other. Uh, what about you, Norman? Well, I mean, we saw that very clear in Star Trek First Contact with the legend of Zephyrin Cochran versus the reality of Zephyrin Cochran. Absolutely, Cochrane. absolutely. Yeah. You know, that's at play here. I mean, when they were chasing him down and Geordi LaForge kept saying, like, this is where your, your statue is going to be. And he's, he doesn't want to be a statue. Yeah. He doesn't want to be this legend. He's a man who had urges of making a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's all he really wanted. Right. 
I, I love where you landed on, by the way, and I, I landed in a different place, although mm. probably um, just as positive as, as yours was. And I love that you reference. I'm going to I'm going to meet your quote with another quote. Okay. And if I may reference a tagline from one of the greatest films of the 1980s, it's called Megaforce. Oh, yes, yes, it is. Please right? go right ahead. So the tagline for that movie is life is about, quote unquote, deeds, not words. To be a little bit more serious about <laughs> the morals, meanings, and messages here, it would have been easy for Kor to live the rest of his life and his career under the auspices of his legend and legacy, the Dehar Master title that was thrust upon him, and the rights entitled to him as one of the greatest warriors of the Klingon Empire. But in the end, he understood that no amount of entitlement or privilege or legacy that he's living with, with the influence of being this Dehar master, would ever find the kind of purchase that his soul needed if he watched the life and death that was befitting of a Klingon warrior from the sideline. Hmm. So as we get older, I've been thinking about this a lot uh, recently, and maybe because, you know, I'm, I'm creeping up on 50 and, you know, all God's willing, I'll be able to, this is my midlife crisis. That means I'll make it to a hundred, but yeah. So we only have 50 you know, more years of mission logs. So yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll hopefully I'll make that. Yeah. So, <laughs> but as we get older, we too will be offered that moment when the wisdom of age will inform the decisions of our present and dictate to us what we must do in regards to our moral and ethical decisions and to make the kind of sacrifices that are worthy of who we are and not the reputation of what others have manufactured for us, whether those accolades are from family or friends or coworkers and so on. Life isn't about what we have done that becomes the coin from which we can exchange for either easier paths ahead in the future. Life isn't about resting on the laurels of what accomplishments that we have garnered over decades of hard work and sacrifice only to believe we're entitled to a far softer and easier future because we feel that we have earned that right. Life is about choosing to do what is right at the moment it presents itself and investing all of who we are in actions and not words. Kor wanted to die as he lived, as a man of action, as a warrior of the empire, and most importantly, as someone who believed that through action alone could he serve in the most noble of purposes, as one who could save the lives of his people and try to give them a future for them to, in turn, do the same for the next generation of warriors. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next mission log, the siege of AR-558. Some of the music for mission log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Schabel. There are old Klingons, and there are bold Klingons, but there are very few old, bold Klingons.
and transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.